0: You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com. Hey guys, this is Brad Carter. I'm here with Billy Kennington of the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by all of us over here at AltitudeOutdoors.com. So today we're going to sit down with Zach Key and we'll talk about mule deer in the high country, mule deer in the low country. Elk, solo hunting, gear, long-range hunting. Also animals in the backcountry. Yeah, livestock in the backcountry. Pros and cons to that and why he, he opts to use them. So, guys, if you're interested in any of that stuff, this is a very valuable podcast for you. Zach lays down some tips and tricks that he uses that I think are incredible. We'll jump into that in just a minute. A couple things, we like to kind of go over what's going on with Altitude Outdoors and what's upcoming. Make sure you go over and check out our new YouTube page. We've been uploading pretty heavily since December uh, with our vlogs, hunting videos, and uh, we've been having fun with that. So if you're on YouTube or you have a Google account, head over there, subscribe, Keep, keep up with everything that we're doing including our Hunt the West series where we go over every state before the application deadline so you can get a little bit more familiar with applying in a state maybe that you've never looked into or you've thought about applying for but haven't done yet.
1: Also our uh, Facebook page, our group page, is the Altitude Invasion. Um, We post a lot of the updates and links to the podcast but other things that we're doing on that page so if you're not part of that group we like to post you know some of our guests and, and different things and and have questions for them from part of our, our listeners.
0: So follow along with us, with us there. We're always open and, and really appreciate your feedback and comments. You can email those to us at altitudeoutdoors.com at com. Without further ado, here is Zachy.
1: Well, tonight we're here with uh, Zachary Key the first time I saw a Zach it was with a huge buck in 2015 that was the Wyoming state record so I've always wanted to hear his story and we wanted to just get him on and we're grateful that that you could be here Zach.
2: Hey man yeah I I appreciate you guys having me on board.
1: Yeah well with that uh, if you just want to let's go do some introductions why don't you tell us a little bit about more about yourself kind of your hunting background and we'll go from there
2: lived in gillette wyoming did a lot of the prairie type hunting for a long time with my dad since i was a little boy four years old you know got into the competitive archery and uh starting started doing competitive archery for a lot of years moved to uh kimmer wyoming of all places and uh that's where the passion for the high country hunting and everything started and slowly adapted from Backpack hunting into uh, you know the the deep back with mules and horses. That's a snapshot, I guess, of, of the journey. So,
0: so how long have you lived in Wyoming now?
2: Uh, 30, going on thirty-two years. So I've always been a, a Wyoming resident. So, oh, nice.
0: How about on this side over in camera, How long have you lived there? Uh,
2: I'm looking at. I think I've been over here probably fifteen years. Nice. Yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty long. I you know, I I moved over here when I was 15, 16 years old, and so I've been hunting, you know, here in the high country ever since.
1: So what's your favorite animal and species to hunt, Zach? Of
2: course it's the mule deer. Oh, yeah. the, the only other thing I've hunted recently that in the last year that I've, I can compare to a mule deer is a sheep. Uh, you know, we went on a desert sheep hunt, but the mule deer, there's something about them. I mean, the, the elk, I love hunting elk and everything else too, but the mule deer, just something about them you know intrigues me so
1: something about them
2: also yeah. gets us
1: too <laughs> i feel the same way the high country it's <laughs> nothing like it so for sure <laughs> well let's go into your 2015 why don't we start there why don't you tell us a little bit about that buck you killed with your bow and, you know what i've never heard that story so this is my first time as well so i'm excited to hear more about you know that story and um you know more about that awesome awesome deer
2: yeah sure it's, it's kind of a longer story, but I'll try to summarize it to, to the action pack stuff. But, but I basically stumbled across that buck. Uh, I went up on a high country scouting trip, and when I was coming off of that scouting trip, I, I had a, about a 210 buck spotted up there. I was going to archery hunt with my bow, and uh, I, I was coming down off that trip, and I actually seen this buck in the lower country running across some BLM stuff, it it caught my eye as I couldn't believe you know the caliber of a buck he was and he was with uh, you know four other bucks and there was also another nice probably a probably a one ninety five two hundred inch typical with him as well. That's kind of when it all started. I mean he was he was uh, he was a lower land buck and uh, kind of in a place you wouldn't uh, you know imagine him being. I kind of wanted to figure out if he was just passing through there. You know, for the first day, I thought, man, he's, he was just coming through, and it was kind of just a coincidence. And uh, a day and a half into it, I actually found him. And then at that point, it's it's about a week and a half, almost two weeks before season opening, September 1st, and I started patterning him. And, and nobody knew about him for the longest time. I mean, nobody ever knew about him until I shot him. I mean, I, I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell my dad, anybody <laughs> um, up until the to the very end, when I got to the very end um, of the of the season, I actually invited a good friend Ray Alexander with me, and he, he uh, he's somebody I had you know taken up on a hunt, and he'd killed uh, we'd killed a two hundred eight inch buck together. So I invited him on, in on the last minute, probably two days before uh, you know September first, and that's when we started really getting you know really getting nervous. I was I was worried the whole time if somebody was going to find out about this buck because he was in an obvious place and uh, luckily i never i never saw a soul so it was pretty you know wow. pretty unique
1: <laughs> sometimes you do find those big old boys in places you wouldn't think
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and i i got a little That's bit awesome. of i got a little bit of crap flicked at me because i shot him in the lowland, if you want to call it that And I'm supposedly the known for the high country hunting and everything else. The only response I have to that is you shoot them where they live. (laughs) I mean, you know, (laughs) you stumble across something like that. It's like you can't turn your head, keep you know, walk away from it. So that morning, I was glassing him from uh, with a spotting scope about 1,800 yards away, and and that's one thing I kind of regret a little bit, just because I didn't get any quality. I got some pictures of him uh, during the scouting season, but nothing that that great of quality, and I, I wish I would have done that a little different got a little closer but i I wanted to be a long ways away from him first of all so nobody figured out where i was what i was actually doing and then second of all um that way you know i i didn't he didn't figure me out either so i kept a a pretty good distance he was going on to uh he was on some private land and blm land and he was going into some, some different ranches as well so i went and got permission uh from some ranch owners uh to you know Pursue this buck, depending, you know where he was at BLM. I I didn't want to have any boundaries, I guess, depending on where he was. Opening day, I went out with Ray Alexander that morning, and the wind was wrong; it was blowing directly into him. Uh, So I backed out and uh, waited till about one o'clock that day, and then I snuck in to where I believed he was going to come through the trail he was going to come through on, you know. I basically made a post and, and sat there. So I sat there from 1 o'clock in, in a storm of mosquitoes and in the heat, sat there until uh, he, he finally came in. I think it was around 7.30, uh, you know, that, that afternoon. So it was a long sit. I was going wow. nuts. <laughs> and one thing, one, a tip I could give people is, is one thing with him, the reason I think I was successful with him is not only did I kind of pattern him, And one thing I missed telling you is he started using a a fifth trail. He was using four primary trails, and he started using a fifth trail the day before opener, and it threw us off. And uh, Ray and I, you know, he told me, no, sit on the fourth trail. And I told him I'm not, you know, no, he changed trails for some reason. You know, something changed him. I'm sitting on the the new trail, the fifth trail, and that's where I ended up killing him is on the fifth trail. So one thing I can say is is it, I think it's important people are patient and they pay attention to what those animals are doing. And, and the patience part is is I, I, you know, the wind was bad, so I backed out, and then I had another opportunity to go sit on the trail again, and I, and I took the time and, and waited him out versus, I mean, the whole time, I'm telling you, when I sat there for seven hours, I wanted to go walk after him because I knew where he was bedded. I knew where he was, had, had went that day. And the the biggest key I could tell people in a spot and stock situation is to just be patient because, you know, there's so many elements. There's those does, other bucks, everything else, moose, you know, anything that can give you away. So make a plan and, and, and stick with it because I wanted to deviate four or five times from my plan. And I, I just kept making myself like, no, don't do it. You know, stuck with it. So, but, yeah, he came in. Um, this is kind of the cool part of the story. He comes in, he jumps a fence, and is coming towards me. And he gets, uh, he, he's out about 100, 109 yards, somewhere in there. And he's kind of feeding away from me broadside. And I'm like, oh, it's not going to happen tonight. I'm going to have to, you know, set up on uh, September 2nd again. And it was a, the craziest thing I've ever seen. So two bull moose, they're, they're kind of smaller bullwinkle moose. They jumped the fence behind those deer. There was five bucks. And these bull moose put their ears back, and they charge these deer. And I'd never seen anything like it before. <laughs> and so they charge them, and that obviously pushed the bucks right to me. They, they actually spun and kind of ran right to me. I had one buck that was like, you know, a, a small 170s uh, four-point. You know, he was probably, oh, I, you know, I'd say at one point probably 10 yards at, at the farthest. So, then, you know, I'm a little nervous I'm going to get busted, obviously, by these other deer. But that brought him in. Um, he got into about sixty yards at that time. I was trying to get, I was trying to be greedy and get a closer shot, to be honest with you. And uh, he kind of turned broadside again and started feeding in the same path he was. And it, and I remember counting it down, man. It was 62, 63, 64 I was counting the, you know, I had my rangefinder up against my bow. And uh, finally, he turned perfectly broadside at sixty-seven yards. You know, I decided, you know, there was no vegetation in the way, that there was no wind. I mean, it was a, it was calm as could be, and I, I, decided, you know, to take the shot. And the shot wasn't perfect. It was a, it was mid body, so it, the height was perfect, but the, uh, it was probably, you know, it was a little bit of lung and, and liver. It was mid body, not, not a, uh-huh. thankfully not a gut shot, but it was kind of, was a little farther back. But I uh, decided to leave him that night. Uh, I, I hiked out and, and, hooked up with Ray Alexander again, and, and told him what had happened. And then uh, the next the next day, September 2nd, is when we went and found him, that's a snapshot. I mean, there's obviously a little bit of small detail I'm leaving out, <laughs> but it was it was exciting, I and mean, it's I still you know still relive the the hunt all the time. I mean, it, it was a, it was a neat experience.
1: It's kind of what it's all about, right there. Even though he's huge, you know, <laughs> just the whole experience from the the, the bull moose to everything else. That's pretty cool. Right. Uh, I just had a couple questions. Um, when you said that you had pretty much patterned him, were you guys sitting on him every day? Were you every other day? How much about when were you watching him from the time you found him to you know September 1st or 2nd?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I work in the oil field and uh, so I, I manage an oil field company. And basically, I would go out every morning uh, before daylight and I would watch this deer until you know 7 seven thirty in the morning and then I'd go to my day job and then I'd come back that night and watch him tilt the dark. And I when I found him finally, I watched him for that week and a half straight. I mean I never I never left him. You know, my family mm-hmm. there was a big you know, there was a sacrifice there too. I mean my, my kids and everything they were I of home every night but they never saw me, you know, so they were they were wondering right <laughs> they were wondering where dad was and uh, but it was one of them deals. I and I you know, my wife was the only one, honestly, that knew about this deer. I had to tell her so she didn't wonder what i was doing but nobody else knew so it was kind of a yeah it was kind of a hush deal and i would actually park my truck in a certain spot and then i'd, I'd actually walk in and a few times i even had had uh, my wife drop me off so i could walk in there so because I, I didn't want people seeing my truck or anything so you know it's a uh, because he was he was honestly in a super obvious spot if somebody would have if people knew where I killed him they'd probably be like you can't you'd be I was five minutes from the town I resided so I mean it was it was a just a crazy you know deal I, I still can't mm-hmm. believe it it you know it happened the way it did to be honest yeah it's pretty crazy
0: so you you say you found him like when did you find him like a week and a half before the hunt you say? yeah it was
2: probably two weeks
0: later mid-august yeah
2: yep it was probably two weeks before the hunt mm-hmm. and then and then by the time I found him, you know, I didn't go look for him for a couple of days, and then I looked for him for about a day and a half, and finally found him. Right on.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Like, I don't know. Sometimes you think you have them figured out, and then they'll do something that just totally surprises you. Right.
2: Well, i was just gonna tell you when, you know, those. When I say I patterned him too, it was it was tough. I mean, he, you know, deer are totally different than the whitetail and stuff. He had no rhyme or reason whatsoever. I mean, he, you know, he would use one trail one day and then the next day use a different trail and he'd use that three times and then next time he'd never use that trail again I mean he just there was no reason to what he was doing and I, I, I couldn't figure it out to be honest with you but I just I just kept watching him and trying to, trying to put some kind of pattern together and like I said the, the night before he switched to a fifth trail he'd never used ever in the week and a half and uh, I decided to sit on that, and, and that's the one he came out of on for you know whatever reason. So they're they're tough, even uh, even though I killed them in a the lower land country. I mean they're still they're still smart, you know.
0: Yeah, they can be tough to pattern. It seems like different bucks have dis- different personalities, and sometimes you can kind of figure out what they're doing, but other times they're just it's almost like they're just random. And especially right. as you get close to that September first, I mean well, when they, they, go can, they can horned. get hard to keep yeah. track of.
1: It also seems to change, you know, when they transition. To right. the hard horns too. That kind of throws off their right. pattern a little bit. But I think one thing that we can learn is, you know, I've always—I don't know who said this—but you know, persistence kills big bucks. And I just think I don't think there's any substitute for time in the field. I mean, I don't think you would—I mean, you wouldn't even known where that buck was going if you know you hadn't spent that time to even learn that fifth right. trail. You know, I just don't think there's anything that we can do to. That, that accounts
0: or can make up for time spent when you were out looking for him were you finding him pretty much every day
2: you know not no honestly not he uh, there, you know out of that week and a half there's probably two uh probably two days out of that week and a half i never saw him i mean i i you know i'm i'm going stir crazy i'm like oh man he, he left or he's he wised up you know because i was wondering when he was going to go hard horned and uh yeah he i mean he he toyed with me i mean he was he was different than the rest too that the 200-inch buck and the and the other bucks that were with him, they would come out into the fields and, and, and head towards their their feeding areas, uh, and they'd be in the wide open. And this this buck would stay back in what I like to call a staging area. He would stay back hidden in the in the trees and the in the willows, and he'd wait till till it was darn near dark every single day to come out. You know what was mm-hmm. odd about it when I killed him the day I killed him, I, I believe things happened for a reason because he was always the fifth buck out and then the day I killed him he was the first buck he was he came in and I he had not done that in the week and a half I'd watched him he was always the last and that day I killed him he was the first buck out and I couldn't believe it I mean it just everything felt like it was lining up you know
0: everything went your way I mean yeah. I mean you worked hard and patterned him obviously but it's, there's always some luck that plays into it too right I mean I mean that's why you got to spend a few days on him or weeks sometimes and worked out the first day for you this time so yeah that's awesome man congrats on that buck that's cool uh, he's a heck of a deer
2: yeah it was it was crazy I, yeah i remember it too i was, i actually after i posted on facebook i was like man i don't know if i should have done that because <laughs> it was
1: right. it was crazy <laughs> kind of jump around here but um you talk a little bit about those staging areas i'm just curious about your glassing techniques um you know high country versus you know techniques you learn used in the low country um and just kind of your your way of going about glassing when you're trying to find these bucks.
2: Yeah, and and I think that comes back to the patience. I mean, the, you know, in both cases, and I guess I'm probably better at the high country. You know, this it, it, with this low country buck I killed, he was was all patience. I mean, it was it was sitting day in and day out. You know, I thought I lost him, and then I'd find him again. And I mean, it was just one of them deals. You know, just a lot of patience, and that's the same thing. You know, people need to take into the high country. Is is patience. I mean, I watch so many people, and I've taken people that they want to sit on a ridge for an hour, and then they want to blow out of the country and go find, you know, go find a buck. And I've I have sat in the same spot. I just two years ago, when we killed uh, three years ago, when we killed Ray Alexander's this uh, two hundred eight buck. I sat in the same spot for four days and never saw a buck over over one sixty. And the the mm-hmm. fifth day. Um, my dad and I spotted a, a 220-inch buck, and we couldn't. He he had giant inlines on both sides. This would. This is the year before I killed mine. I mean, he would have hit you know, 220, 230 buck. He was, he was huge, and we tried to get over to him in time and couldn't uh, before it got dark. I mean, we we were a long ways away from him, and uh, so I came out of the mountains, went back in with Ray Alexander. We sat in the same spot, and this 208 buck that we'd never seen come walking out and he he lasered him at 825 yards and uh we never did see that inline buck again ever i mean we we hunted it i hunted you know another couple of weeks tried to fight him again and never saw that buck again had one chance to see him had one chance to see rays and, and uh, that's the biggest thing i think kill people in in hunting high country animals is, is they have a lack of patience they they blow in somewhere and they blow out they miss stuff you know you gotta you know and i don't want to sit there on the ridge any worse than any any worse than anybody else, but I'm just telling you that's one of your biggest tips in in killing, you know, big buck after year after year.
1: So when you do have to move, what prompts you to move? What helps you make that decision? You know
2: and that that is that's a hard question, honestly, because it it's honestly your gut in a lot of cases. I mean if I if I'm sitting in a spot and uh, you're just not seeing deer, period, or you see a lot of does. Uh, that's one thing that I've always believed. Seems like if you're seeing a lot of does, the bucks aren't far away, but they're not. You know, they're not right there with all the does and the fawns and stuff. So it's just kind of a gut thing, I guess. I, you know, on that, honestly, I'll be honest with you. I've sat in some spots before that I didn't think were that good. And then, you know, three, four days into the sit, see the, see the bruiser. So, honestly, the, the patience of sitting there is, is more valuable. But you got to, I mean, you guys know, you got to know, you know, what kind of terrain to be looking at, too. And then there's some spots that just are obviously just look like they're a good deer spot. I mean, they got the, the buck cabbage, I like to call it, in right. and, and brush and, and, and cover. But one thing that I think. And I probably shouldn't even give this tip out, but one thing I think that uh, helps me with the the high country mule deers, I, I hunt them in a spot that people don't normally think to hunt them. People always look at the right. big basins with the little scrub trees and, the, and the, the deer cabbage, and that's where they always assume that's going to be. I like to go into the dark timber. I like to go into where the timber's thick. There's very few patches of openings, very few, uh, you know, patches at all i mean it's it's almost solid timber that's where i go in a lot of cases and and the problem is you glass and glass and glass for days like i was saying because there's not a lot to glass and you feel like you're going crazy but where i find a lot of these big bucks is is where people don't expect them to be i mean it's it's thick elk timber you know and that's that's what people need to understand once once that opening day happens of rifle they're out of there man those big bucks they're they're not going to hang around they may get stupid for one day but they're after that you know they're they're headed for some smarter cover you just got to try to think if you were a deer where would you go and everybody's still hunting the big old open basins you know a week into it oh i haven't seen a deer and i'm just like yeah keep looking here you know you just roll out (laughs) to your spot so i
0: mean we had similar areas because we're residents here and it's a general hunt you know i mean that's the the tough thing is you've got a lot of hunters And even in, especially in the last few years, I think, like, the number of hunters is getting a lot higher. Especially in the high country. And so, yeah, I mean, getting away from other people, I mean, I I don't know how many times I've had, you know, a hunt ruined or deer pushed out or a deer shot that I was watching that was, you know, from another hunter. I think that's an important thing is to try and know where the deer are, where the hunters aren't going to be, which can, can be kind of hard to find those areas, but... I mean, people no, are kind that's... of drawn to the high country, like you said, and I think they're like, the bucks are in the high country, but they're everywhere. You know, right. they're at 6,000 feet, they're at 10,000 feet, so. So,
1: Zach, I'm just curious with your glassing technique, are you using uh, Are you using binos? What kind of binos are you running in those uh, short shorter quarters where you're looking for those deer? Um, and then just go through kind of what your glass setup is, what you're using and running these days, and then. I'm
2: just interested to know that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm going to shock people because I don't. You know, I honestly don't have the best quality glass. I have, uh, Brunton binoculars, which are now out of business, and uh, you know they're the the Aternus, um, 45 power. But you know. They're, they're okay, but they're not even the best. And then I have a Zeiss uh, a dialectic Spotting Scope. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've, I've looked through much clearer glass and everything else. But someday I'll end up getting some, you know, better quality glass at, at some point. But, you know, that stuff's done me well. I, I've, I know one thing. When I first started hunting the high country uh, mule deer, I had a little brunt and spotting scope. And the thing, I don't even know what power it was. It was, it was not much. And then when I stepped up to the, to the Zeiss, it, it helped tremendously. I mean, having the right optics and, and stuff, you know, helps. But I think it still comes back to the patients. The way I, the way I glass is I, my, my bare eyes and binoculars first. And I, I try to locate some deer, some potential uh, spots that look like it. And then once I have not succeeded there, then I'll get that spotting scope up and I'll actually start breaking trees apart break in the country part and that's when you start finding them by horn tips and and you know maybe just small patches but i usually start with the binoculars first and then go to the spotting scope i think the spotting scope almost can be a bad thing uh, if you start with that because you're so zoomed in you you miss things in my opinion so it's pretty much
0: what we do yeah yeah i agree i actually use that same spotter i i like it for the backcountry i mean for as light as it is i mean you're not alpha glass but you're it's pretty pretty decent yeah yeah it works i've been happy with
2: it yeah i like it so mm-hmm. it, it's nice and packable that's what i like
1: so let's uh let's talk about you did say in your intro that uh you, d- you used to backpack a lot and you kind of tra- transitioned to more using some animals right. so will you tell us a little bit about you know the differences that you've learned from backpack hunting and using animals and then um we'll go from there
2: backpacking yeah. has its pros um the, the pros of backpacking is you have nothing to babysit. You don't have animals to worry about. There's there's nothing to worry about. If people that backcountry hunt with goats and llamas and horses and mules. I mean there's there's a lot of work involved in doing that from a care uh, perspective. You know you can't leave your animals. You have gotta have water. You know and, and obviously each animal has their their trade offs. The backpacking is nice because you can just basically blaze wherever you feel like going and uh, that's what i liked about the backpack hunting but when it came time you know to kill something uh it it makes it a little more complicated most of the hunting i do is solo you know i'm 165 pounds and you know packing an elk out you know seven miles for me is you know that's a that's a chore (laughs) just like anybody else but for me at 160 pounds it's really a chore so i decided to take a leap of faith had a lot of people tell me to start with horses and I always had an interest in mules and so I actually started with mules I had four four mules they were riders and packers and that's what I started with and now I've actually got some horses in the fleet as well but the reason I went horses is is not only because you can ride them um so you can save a lot of energy I can get in there five six miles you know ten miles whatever you're trying to do and you're still 100 percent energetic and that's That's why i went that way and and i'll typically get in there and i'll tie up the horses to some long lines or something and then i backpack from that point so i still kind of do a a mixture um i'll you know i'll backpack a couple miles a day still but at least i'm in there you know at a base camp and so i think that's also helped me be successful with this hunting to be honest with you because i'm able to get a little deeper a little farther away from people and uh and then continue my backpacking Passion, you know. You know, I pack differently than a lot of people probably do on the horses and mules. To be honest with you, I still pack the lightest gear I possibly can. Go in as with a backpacker mind, even though I have plenty of animals. And I know a lot of people that have horses and mules. Man, they pack giant wall tents and every single thing they can possibly take in there. And I don't. I, you know, the only thing I do take is a is a small teepee tent that has lots of room. But otherwise, I pack. You know, the the QU lightweight stuff and carbon fiber this and carbon fiber that and try to try to mm-hmm. cut as much weight as I can you know and but it's a it's definitely a challenge I mean I can't one problem with having animals is is uh you I can't leave them you know I have to I have to be there and and make sure they they stay out of getting tangled up and you know wolves and bears and stuff aren't messing with them and, and they're getting water and, and fed and that part is a little bit of a bummer because there's been times where I found a, a big bull or a big buck and, and just wished I could have stayed right there on the mountain under a tree. And, uh, you just, you, you don't have that opportunity, uh, you know, with those animals, but, you know, but there's, you know, you can figure pros and cons for everything. I mean, I know Aaron Lyman, you see him on Facebook a lot. He, uh, that guy has some pack goats, he makes them work, and he does a really good job at it. I like being able to ride a animal in there, and then with the hunts all over, and you've boned it, and, and you know done all the grueling, you know walking around, and, and put you know six seven miles on, on foot. It's nice to ride them out. It, you know know, there's, know that you are getting right out of the, out of the back country. So uh,
1: I grew up, you know, with horses and hunted horses all my life. But one thing, especially in the high country, is just you know those horses need water every day, if not every other day. So same as you, I felt a little bit like we are babysitting yeah. them. You know, and I found sometimes you you spend a couple hours or di- um, different things coming back and taking care of them, and then, you know, you get them to the water source or whatever, finally find a water source, and then they won't drink. Right. So th- what <laughs> what's some tips for guys out there that, that you found managing the animals in the water? Well,
2: people probably won't agree with my my ways to be honest with you the reason i like the mules is they they eat they they say they eat 10-15 percent less than a horse Uh, they drink the same amount less than a horse and uh you know they they pack more weight they're smoother you know that's why i'm a mule fanatic because for the the high country hunting they just to me make more, more sense they're not quite a quite as convenient as a goat or a llama on the on the eating and drinking but they they do eat less so I'll, I'll take those animals in knowing that they're good and fed up before i go good and watered up before i go and i'll take them in and i'll i'll dry camp for uh you know two three days and you know that's where i say some people probably won't agree with me but you're exactly right i'm if the first couple days my animals none of them i mean the horses or mules typically won't drink um All they're worried about is eating some high country grass, and I think there's a lot of moisture in that grass, anyways. But I'll I'll usually go up and kind of dry camp for a couple days in a spot where most horse hunters won't go, and then at that point, if I if I need to, I'll reposition down to the water. And it seems like the 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 second third day is when they'll finally entertain a drink. But I don't necessarily camp right by by a water source, anyways. So you know, one I'll give you a tip that people overlook and maybe this will help some people, is don't be afraid to move. There's been so many times I've, I've went up there and I've set up my camp and the long lines are out and the tent's up, everything's set, and, and I'll go hunt for a day or two and it's miserable. And it's, you're not seeing the deer, you're not seeing elk or whatever you're looking for. And most people will sit in the same spot because they don't, they're, they're too, and I don't mean this rude, but they're too lazy to tear camp down. And, and try moving somewhere else. And that's maybe one of my, my advantages is I'm not scared to. I got those horses and stuff. It's not that big of a deal to resaddle them up and pack them up. Get familiar with your equipment. Get familiar with t- tying double diamonds, box hitches, whatever it is with animals. Get yourself familiar with it so it's fast and easy. Don't be afraid to move. This year as a prime example with Eric and I, you know, we went into to a new spot. We'd never tried in the whole back. All we saw was people and we saw some big buck tracks, but but I, I think they were long gone, to be honest with you. I mean, we saw, you know, nine, 10 people a, a day in it. So we stayed there for two days, We went down to camp. It was a complete torrential downpour. I'm talking just dumping the rain. We packed up camp in the rainstorm, loaded up the animals, rode out. Uh, so it was about a four mile ride out, took them uh, to a new trailhead down the way loaded them back up, and rode seven miles back in all in one day. That day, we set up camp the next day. Uh, Eric killed his 175 buck, and I killed my 195 buck. that We just killed this in 2016. So it was one of them deals. We just we knew it didn't feel right, and, and I've got so many friends that are like, oh, yeah, I sat there and hunted the same spot for a week and didn't see anything. Well, if you're not seeing anything for a couple of days and it doesn't feel yeah. good, listen to your gut feeling and get out of there and go – Go try something else. Don't be don't be afraid to be spontaneous and get out. And I think that'd that'd get some people some more success success too. In my opinion.
1: Perfect. Uh, why don't you tell us about your uh, your bull too this year, your solo hunt?
2: So I gotta I gotta tell you this little this little part real quick. But so I told my wife. She's like, What are you gonna do now that you killed that big buck? And I said, Well, now I'm gonna go kill a seven by seven bull. And a deer with a drop tie, and thats my goal. So it, it just—it's funny how it all happened because I was honestly being a, a smart aleck. So, anyways, I—what happened is my wife decided to go on a trip out of town with the girls, and I had the kids. Well, they wanted to spend the night with their aunt, so I decided last minute on a Friday night, it's like three o'clock to load up, and I only had two days to go, so I had to be home Sunday for work. So I blew into the into the Wind Rivers. You know it's it's grizzly bear country remote you know above timberline and i i blew in made it as far as i could friday night set up a, a temporary spike camp and then i reloaded camp up at six in the morning that next morning saturday morning and i blew in uh the rest of the way i was probably about five miles in is all and uh but i was up at you know i was camped at, at ten thousand about 10 six so i was i was up there pretty high i was you know borderline timberline uh for that country what was cool about it is is I got camp set up and everything by about nine o'clock. Well, ten o'clock probably Saturday morning, and I went and had my first stock on a bull. Fast version is had the second stock on this bull. I killed. I sat there. the The cool part of this story was is I, he was he was bugling and screaming, and I ran over the ridge, and I and I was literally right in the middle of these cows and in, in this bull. And so I just I kneeled down by a tree and I just sat there for two hours. And and thankfully. The wind was in my face. Uh, it was pretty steady wind, but it was in my face, and I had a cow laying 15 yards away from me, and I had a calf about 35. And that bull actually circled around, and he laid about 65 yards in front of me. And I, I sat there for about two hours waiting for him to get up and do something. Just another one of them deals, you know. I the uh, cow that was laying in front of me got up and walked right by me, and that bull had to come check her out, and he, you know, 22 yards away and. And I was able to make an awesome shot. I mean, he he spun, ran, and died right in front of me. It was it was a a cool deal. Well, I didn't know that bull was there. I never pre-scouted him or nothing. And it just kind of turned out good. So it was it was fun. The reason I had to tell you the first part is it was fun when I called my wife and I said, "Hey, guess what I just shot?" She's like, "What?" I'm like a seven by seven bull. So it was a it was a pretty you know pretty cool deal. So. That was the hardest I've ever worked for an elk in my life because not only did I have three <laughs> animals up there with me and I'm taking care of all of them solo and then and then boning. I mean, I was in there so f- you know far enough in the Wind Rivers so it's so steep I had to bone the elk. So I yeah. got it boned and, and ready to go Saturday night, went to sleep, and then Sunday morning I loaded camp up, went down, unloaded camp, reloaded the meat and camp, and oh. then and then trekked out. And I don't know if you've looked through my Facebook, but I've got a picture of the the uh, elk rack on the my backpack on my qu backpack well i i ran out of room that elk was the biggest bodied elk i'd ever killed i mean he boned out he was over 200 pounds of, of meat boned and and that's taking neck meat and everything and, and uh you know i i can't even remember the actual total weight but that was just the meat and so what i i didn't have enough room so what I did is I I actually walked out. I, I ponied all my animals together, and then I I walked out with them horns on my back. So it was the hardest I'd ever worked for anything. I mean, it was it was straight out of the windies, and you know the horns were were dragging across logs and stuff. It was it was a, honestly, you know, it was a it was a crazy experience for me. So
0: makes you appreciate it more when you have to work that hard, huh? oh it
2: did man it did I, I remember getting back to the truck and i took my backpack off and everybody's done this you take your big old heavy backpack off and it feels like you're flying like you feel like you're gonna jump in the truck you yeah
1: know?
2: so but it was it was pretty
1: cool so i found some of those grueling packouts and stuff they're not so fun while you're going through it but you know they get they, they're very memorable after it's all right. done and those are the ones you remember
0: <laughs> well, and you seem to forget the pain really fast yeah oh they'll do that again (laughs) yeah absolutely
2: yeah on the way out you're like i am never doing this again then you get to the truck you're like man i'm I'm going back next week
0: (laughs) so what are your like i'm a little interested in your tactics when you're solo elk hunting like are you calling it all or are you mostly just trying to locate and then move in and stock
2: yeah so everybody has their different deal you know you guys are you guys are pride for all my my good tips but i don't call a lot i i like to i like to call with a cow call and locate i don't even take a bugle tube my dad it drives my dad right. he he takes a bugle tube and is bugling them in and my dad's very successful i mean he's killed 30 30 bulls and i don't do it that way though i've i've always went in and uh i'll locate him with a cow call and if i can if they're fired up i'll go in silent you know i'll go in i'll go in completely silent right I think that's why I've I've had a lot of success, and I haven't shot a lot of bull elk, but it's been by design. I because I'm such a small guy, I'm super picky. I you know I've had so many opportunities I probably shouldn't have passed up, but you know just trying to wait for that that right one. And uh, I know a lot of people that, that use bugles and stuff and are, are very successful and very good with it, but you know I I've had the best success with with cow calls. It's, you know I think about it in this terms, and this maybe help people said this to my dad one day and he thought it was actually a pretty good analogy but i told him i said think about uh, in, in a human terms again i always i always try to reflect think about mule deer and elk and everything as a human if there's a, a, a hot girl in the bar and you and you two guys are in the bar do you really want to fight each other you really don't one of you just wants to go <laughs> you know ask the girl to to go hang out well I think about the bulls the same way. They don't really want to fight. They're they're bugling. They're trying to let you know that hey, I'm in charge, and they want to be the man. You know, you go screaming in there with a bugle. A lot of times, you'll notice those bulls will turn and run, and it ain't because you're doing a bad job bugling. Oh, yeah. yep. It's because they'll take their cows and they load them up and they get out of here. They don't want to lose their cows. They don't want to. Yep. They don't really want to have the confrontation, and and I think that's what people miss. If they're able mm-hmm. to just pick up a cow and there's no other bull around, they're you know, they'll actually run towards you try to try to actually put you into the group with with the other cows and that's why you know I'm not anti bugle but I don't I don't like to use a bugle yeah it's
0: that's, that's the reason I ask and I've you know I, I find myself I just carry a little pack bugle but I rarely use it but and I haven't hunted elk a lot in the last few years because I kind of just been focusing all my time on deer but um, a lot of successful hunters elk hunters don't call some do right so I was just interested in kind of what you did especially by yourself you know because calling by yourself can be tough because those those elk come in and they seem to you know they kind of have that curtain where they'll hang up just out of sight and kind of see what's going on and so it's that last little bit it's it's hard to pull them in at least I think so by yourself you know to bring them in all the way but I also noticed that too I started hunting hunting elk you know not a ton
1: but very similar and I've also noticed that there seems to be more and more archers and so you get all these people bugling and, you know, the elk just, like you say, they just kind of shut up and move. And so if you get yep. a lot of times, if you just do a locator bugle, get them going and then use a you slip in and use that cow call. I found that to be a lot more productive than even using the the bugle.
2: So I've taken a few friends with me hunting before elk, and and uh, I and I don't know how you guys elk hunt, but I also will run at them. I mean, I'll charge them. And when they're fired up, their eyes are rolled in the back of their head. They've lost their minds. They're 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 chasing their cows around. You have to be careful. There's a balance, but there's a lot of times where I'll cow call, and I know, and I'm solo, so I know that I I have a gap to close before I'm identified, and I'll run. I'll I'll run right into them. I'll be jumping logs, running, making a ton of noise. And everybody's looking at me like, "What are you doing?" And I'm telling you they don't—that noise and stuff doesn't bother them. What'll bother them is when they see you. The noise doesn't bother them. They—they—they they, they just think you're another elk tromping through the woods. So, I'll, that's what I do a lot of times. I'll cow call from 100 yards away, and then I'll run up 60 60 yards and try to keep some you know vegetation between me and the elk, and and, and close that gap up to where he thinks I'm still back 100 yards away, and he'll come up into my zone. So you know there's there's little things you learn and it doesn't work on every time it doesn't work every time but you know it's something that people can try
0: yeah
1: that's a good tip so zach let's talk about i know you're kind of a long-range guy long-range rifle guy i'm interested in your setup and kind of your feelings on this kind of paradigm shift that we're going to long range hunting?
2: I, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I, uh, I've i got a long range gun and I, I still try to get close all the time. I mean, it's just kind of natural in a hunter, I think, to, to try to get close. My goal is not to, not to shoot an, an animal at the farthest range just because I got the equipment to do it. But there's two elements to it. With the long range shooting, and, and I think it's very important people understand is gun works and, and those guys advertise, oh, you a hundred, uh, 1,400 yards out of the box. And I, I think that... Is actually bad for the long-range industry because you're putting the gun in the, in people's hands that, that don't have any right or, or responsibility to be using it. And I think it's very important if people go out and they spend the money, and they get the quality optics and and, and, and a gun. You know, they need to go to the range and practice and practice and practice before they ever think about putting a, an animal's life in danger with that with that weapon. So that's a very I think that's very important. People understand that. But I I like I have a twenty eight Nosler um, I have Blue Mountain Precision build all of my all of my custom uh, rifles they you know the guy Eric went to school uh, making bench guns and, and the guys guns are quarter minute all day long and I think it's important that people mm-hmm. have just a, a super quality shooting rifle if they are going to take the longer shots you know I've had people tell me well I got a Remington seven hundred that'll shoot a thousand yards all day long well yeah. But it hits the side of a, a Volkswagen Jetta at a thousand yards. You know, you get a my gun will shoot five inches at a thousand yards. You know, a five inch group's a heart shot. I think right. people need to, you know, if they're gonna get into the long range and stuff, they need to take it responsibly and, and do the right things to be part of that group and, and practice and everything else. But my favorite calibers are the 6.5-284. The gun does not have a lot of recoil, and it's flat shooting, and, and you know, shoot a 140-grain bullet. Prime sheep, deer gun, you know, elk, we've killed elk at, you know, six, 700 yards with it all day long. I really like the 6.5s, um, and then, you know, 7 mag. If I was to recommend to just the average hunter for long range, a, a 7 mag is probably your best. You're able to shoot a 180 grain, you know, it's a flat shooting rifle, and, and that you know, that's probably the, the most recommended caliber I would give somebody. Is a 7 mag. Um, the most recent build I've done is a 28 nozzler, you know, 7 mag on steroids basically. Um, I'm shooting 175 grain Hornady ELDX at, uh, you know, 3260. You know, Oof. the difference is a 28 nozzler versus a 7 Ultra mag is, is the pressures and everything. You know, a 28 nozzler, they've got it down to a science with the, you know, the shoulder and, and the way the cases and everything else to where they're very consistent, very good grouping flat shooting gun whereas like an ultramag you know you'll hear some people say they're a little finicky and and they struggle with them a little bit and that's the difference they're basically the same thing in a sense but that 28's is just just a flat shooting grouping you know real nice gun so that's what I've got now. Is that twenty eight and, and, and still that six five two eighty four. But it's all about building a precision gun and then and having the optics. And I'm a Husqvarna fan. I, I'm sure everybody's seen that on my post and everything else. I got a sticker on the truck. I'm so Husqvarna diehard. But Husqvarna, you know, there's great scopes out there. I'm not saying there's not other good scopes, but Husqvarna for me, the reason I like it is because it's it's fast. It's it's a an easy system. I mean, a, you know, a twelve-year-old kid can use a huskima scope. It's, it's, you know, they're so simple. They're bulletproof. I've, I've had horse wrecks and everything else, and and the things have made it through it unscratched. Um, you know, I just, I'm a, I'm a big die-hard Huskama guy. I've, I've been with, you know, the huskima group since they had the first prototype, and and they, they care about the product they're building, and, and that's what mm-hmm. I recommend to people. You know, I've heard people say, oh, you can get better glass here and there, and this and that, and. I've never had a uskima penalize me in a light situation. The reason I like the uskima is because it's got the dial turret system. And I've t- I take a lot of kids uh, out hunting to introduce them into the outdoors that, that don't have the opportunities. And Man, it's, it's so nice. I'm not teaching them to shoot long range, that's not the purpose of it. It's so nice to be able to you know see a deer out there, an antelope or something at, at 275, 325 yards and dial that scope to that yardage exactly. And tell them to aim small, miss small. You see that tough hair on that, that deer's shoulder, aim for that and shoot it. And that's usually, I, I mean, they miss it by like an inch. You know, and that's why I'm such a big Huskimaw guy, too, is I think right. the the ethics they allow you by being able to dial it um, is top notch. And a lot of people don't understand is Night Force has a dial scope, and so's Leopold, and all these other guys are coming out with it. But Huskimaw was the first patented scope ever to come out with the windage and the turret ability in the top of it. So they're the only ones that have the windage marking, you know, laser engraved into the top of the turret for fast action. you got a deer out there, a coyote out there, whatever, it's right there at your fingertip. Whereas night force, you'll notice you get the G7 range fighter because it figures your wind for you. And the reason they do that is not because it's a bad scope or bad setup, it's because they don't have have that patent right to have the, the wind on the turret. That's the difference. And that's why... Get get something you're familiar with and comfortable with, and you need to determine your 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 range ability. And I'm not saying GunWorks is a bad product. I, they, they make a nice gun and everything else. But I just hate seeing for the outdoor long range industry, you know, 1,400 yards out of the box on a side of a a side of a logo. I think it's horrible for us because there's a there's a big thing going on right now where a lot of hunters and non-hunters are trying to get long range shut down they want it down so as hunters and and outdoorsmen we gotta we gotta band together do the right Mm -hmm. things be ethical and not try to take a 1400 yard shot on a big game animal just because he can't you know try to get closer i mean we're we're still our hunters
1: right I, i as well i'm a long range guy and um you know, people people say, are you really able to do that? And I say, well, right. yeah, because I've practiced, but that doesn't mean I take the shot. We can always get get closer. But one thing, that the little tip that I would give, if people are interested in long range, you've got to get in the hills and shoot. I mean, even at the bench, you know, verifying that zero, um, get in the hills, you need to practice angles. You need to practice wind in those canyons. You need to practice just like that mule there or that sheep, or that elk, because if you don't practice and you're not putting, I mean, sometimes hundreds of rounds down, you're not going to make that shot, and that's where it's, you know, that's where it's unethical, and a lot of guys are, you know, against the long range, because they think it takes, you know, takes the skill out. Um, I would disagree, because there's a lot of skill, and a lot of practice to be able to read that wind, and do different things like that, but again, it's the practice. It's the same as, You know, the guy that pulls his rifle out of the box and was only shot at, you know, two times to make sure it was on and then shooting two or three hundred yards. You know, in my mind, a guy that spent the time and can shoot a two and a half, three inch group at six hundred, you know, is going to be a lot more proficient at taking that animal down and knowing his you know, capability with that weapon. You know, I think that's a lot more ethical. So a lot of times it just comes down to opinion, but, um, you know, knowing your weapon system, practicing with it, and practicing with it in real-time hunting scenarios. I think it's key.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's all sorts of shoots, I mean, that they have. I mean, all over Utah, you know, I do the Huskama Challenge every single year. You know, people need to start following that, going to that. I mean those that's what they are I mean they're you know you're shooting 100 rounds in, in a couple days you know laying prone kneeling standing uh offhand upside down in rain wind whatever <laughs> and that's what they those those shoots are are designed for is to teach you know teach a person the, the different shooting angles and everything else but that's what I mean not only can they go out and practice in any hills you can shoot any rock or any speck off anything all over the hills on public land, but they also have tons of shoots, uh, for long range enthusiasts yeah. to, to get that, that kind of practice. I mean, I, I, I'm comfortable taking a, uh, you know, a thousand yard shot on a deer and elk all day long. I mean, I don't, but I guarantee it's from shooting hundreds of rounds it, like you're talking about. And that's what people need to understand is, man, don't, don't be a 200 yard shooter and go pick up a thousand yard gun and start just taking 800,000 yard shots at animals. Cause yeah. you're going to ruin it. For the rest of us that, that are that love it and that's all i can say i mean it's just like archery gear to you you know i got a little when i shot that deer 67 yards you know i got a little uh stuff flicked at me about that too well i've been shooting competitive archery a lot of people don't know this but i've been shooting competitive archery since i was a you know old enough to draw a bow i mean i took third in the nation i took sixth in the, the junior olympics in salt lake I, i've taken my dad's took 16th in the world my dad's a phenomenal archery shot you know i've been doing it my whole life it, it, it i practice and practice and practice i don't just pick up the bow two days before hunting season and practice right. it's a year-round commitment and that's what i think people need to understand you need to be taking care of yourself physically so you can put out during the hunts you need to take care of your your weapons and your gear and everything and you need to be practicing with it year-round that's the biggest thing you got to live it and i and i know there's a lot of us that do i know you you both do and but you gotta live it. You can't just pick the bow up two days before the hunt and then go out and start bow hunting. That ruins it for us, you know. Yeah. As as hunters, so I couldn't agree
0: more. Yeah, commitment's a huge thing. That's a, I mean, I, I own a little shop here in Afton, and you know, so I talk to I don't, lots more people than I would otherwise. You know, and they'll say, "Well, how am I gonna You know, I want to kill a deer, big buck or whatever. And I'm like, "Well, commit to it, then." You know, like it is a it's the lifestyle. Like it's not. If you want to be consistent, I mean, guys get lucky, but if you want to be consistent like you are, you know, it's you you live and breathe it every
2: single day. Yeah, and putting yourself in the field too, you know, that's a. I have a lot of people that always ask me, you know, how do you kill so many animals and, and all these big animals? You know, we've killed a 204, 208, you know, all sorts of, of big bucks. And they're asking me where my secret spot is. Well, there is no secret spot. It's just, it's literally going out. When we killed Eric's 204-inch buck, uh, it's been about five years ago. When we killed that, we, we had hunted 33 days for just mule deer, 33 days for his buck. And that, that's the other thing, too. People have to pass on bucks. Oh, yeah. if, if you want to shoot a 200-inch buck, don't shoot a 180-inch buck or a 190-inch buck. And, and Eric passed a phenomenal – this buck, I don't – I couldn't even believe he passed it. It was a 195, pushing 200-inch typical buck, and it was beautiful. I mean, a big old wide, great buck. And he passed it because he wanted a 200-inch buck And in uh, – I think it was about seven days after he passed that buck we finally killed that 204 buck and you, you gotta pass on those smaller animals let them grow up and if you want to shoot a big one if you don't want to shoot a big one you don't. if you're just out there to shoot a meat buck or whatever i understand that too i, I believe in all all hunting is good so you got to be willing to pass oh,
1: yeah. i think sometimes you have to be willing to pass for seasons too it's not just you know pass for one day sometimes it takes multiple seasons to have that opportunity too so um... absolutely i love that that buck eric's that's when i watched because you guys had a little video and that's one of the things that just got me just crazy about high country mule deer was his deer so that was
2: pretty awesome yeah it was it was cool we didn't we didn't honestly we knew he was big but we didn't realize he was that big i mean we we were thinking uh 190s you know we'd passed on the 190 buck before and uh you know we were thinking the same caliber and when we got up to him we're like holy cow man he's it grew ten inches. You know, it was it was pretty cool. But and it was actually the the day before the last day. The next day was the last day of the season. Uh, you know, because we hunt both units. I couldn't believe it. But we archery hunted mule deer, and then we gun hunted. You know, the September fifteenth opener, and then we we actually shot that two hundred four buck in the October first opener. And gee, yeah, it was. I mean, it was insanity. I, I'd never hunted so hard for mule deer in my entire life. And it, it's just being out there. You, the people got to put themselves out there. You cannot go up. And I understand people have work schedules and stuff, you know, as well as I do, but you cannot go up for four days and have no rhyme or reason and traipse around and, you know, be disappointed with yourself. You you just have to keep trying again and again and again. you got to earn it.
1: Okay, well, we appreciate your time and we appreciate talking to you. I learned a bunch, so.
2: Yeah,
1: for um, sure. Zach, if anyone wants to, to follow you, how's the best way to do that?
2: I don't have Instagram or anything, so best way i guess is for me on facebook so
1: okay. well but, again we appreciate your time so, and and uh, look forward to what what you do in 2017
2: yeah and good luck to you guys too and all the other outdoorsmen out there so hope, hopefully uh, everybody keeps tearing it up and having fun so it's it's going to be an interesting year this year this year with the the way the snow's been and stuff around yeah. here thanks for having me on line you bet yeah thanks jack
0: You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com.